From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. Aaron Scudda, and I work at Princeton University, where I run the Princeton Mellon Initiative in Architecture, Urbanism, and the Humanities. I'm in the midst of a research project that's about the, the securities and commodities trading industries um, roughly from 1960 through 1990. I'm interested particularly in um, exchanges in New York and Chicago, although the project isn't limited to that um, right now. Um, and I'm basically tracing a period of time during which commodities and securities trade trading evolved from a process that was very physical and embodied. So there was the actual exchange of pieces of paper or the communication of individuals in a particular trading floor or pit um, to a time where um, these industries began to automate um, and a lot of these processes moved on to computer servers. My background is actually in urban, urban history and I guess to a lesser extent architectural history. Um, my first book was on artists and gentrification. So questions of economics and the history of technology are relatively new to me. I'm particularly interested in the urban implications of these questions, right? How you, particularly as cities transition to sort of a post-industrial era, um, how and why these particular economic functions and institutions remained in cities and how some of the aspects of their operations moved to suburbs. So kind of looking, moving from an era of downtown trading floors to an era of suburban um, computer servers. Yeah, I'm here because um, the Hagley was generous enough to offer a small exploratory grant. I mean, basically here, I'm just trying to push my own research into more of these questions of, you know, business history and the history of technology. Um, the collections I, I've looked at thus far um, have mostly been on the sort of technology side, although obviously there, there are a lot of business involved. The collection I've looked at the most was or the is uh, MCI, um, in part because um, they were one of the early, the kind of most prominent companies on the net, what the NASDAQ. Um, and I'm interested in the NASDAQ as this early, as an early example of uh, a stock exchange essentially without a centralized trading floor. Um, so in a sense, like there's a moment in my research where the New York, the New York Stock Exchange is beginning to automate, to try to move more and more of its, its functions to computer servers because they're so overwhelmed with paper. There was actually a period of time in 1968 when the New York Stock Exchange closed uh, one day a week because they simply had too much paperwork to get through. Um, so they were kind of really worried about what the fate of this um, very centralized embodied stock exchange is going to be. And right at that time, the NASDAQ, which is actually just a um, network of computer terminals where brokers on the over-the-counter market can get price information, that's when it starts to sort of come into its own. And the NASDAQ slowly kind of evolved or maybe quickly evolved into kind of a competitor to New York Stock Exchange and MCI is sort of there every step of the way. So NASDAQ is the, you know, it stands for the, Nas the National Association of Securities Dealer Automated Quotations, right? So the National Association of Securities Dealers are, you know, was an organization for people who operated on the over-the-counter market. And the over-the-counter market are stocks that are not traded on the main floors of stock exchanges. And what people, what these brokers would do, they was essentially they would just call around to different people to ask who had the best price for a stock and then eventually buy the stock over the phone. So the NASDAQ essentially started as a way to eliminate some of these phone calls, which is ironic, I guess, that MCI ended up being one of their main, like, one of the, the big stocks on the exchange for quite a while. Um, and it's put, you know, 
Of course, like this process is rather unwieldy, generated a lot of paper, but I'm, I'm seeing as this research emerges, this sort of a, a rush, a competition over like who would automate in what way and who would do it sort of better and faster, right? And more automation means an ability to handle more and more transactions. Um, and that was the thing that was sort of like gumming up the works of the securities market during this era. So you sort of have the NASDAQ as just a bunch of computer terminals all around the country that come together in condensers at certain cities. But really the whole stock exchange is run by a computer server in um, suburban Connecticut, right? Which is very different from the New York Stock Exchange, which is beginning to automate and develop its own computer server infrastructure. But still their center is in you know, lower Manhattan and New York City. Moment in 1968, which is you know the, the, pa the paperwork crunch or crisis of 1968, right? You know, despite all of the you know urban upheavals and political upheavals and you know assassinations of that year, the only thing that kept the securities industry you know grounded to a halt was literal paperwork, right? So there's this moment where you know the time it took to clear transactions to go from someone agreeing to buy it to when the money is exchanged and the stock certificate exchange it was taking upwards of several weeks to get this process you know completed and you know there was these millions of transactions were being processed on the exchange every day so i think like this this moment is when there again as i said is there's this push to automation and um, you know, I don't want to necessarily misspeak because it's still an emerging project, but I get a sense that like, if you have an exchange that can then show that it can handle transactions, show that it can handle you know greater and greater volume, you know safely and efficiently, then that's the exchange that perhaps could see itself as having a competitive advantage going forward. And certainly in the annual reports of the Nasdaq, which are in the MCI collections, you say, oh, you know, our, our you know we handled X many million transactions. The next year, it's even more millions of transactions. You know, it's that. I think that process is sort of like wrapped up in the automation as well. What interests me as an, as an urban and architectural historian is like how we can think of this type of infrastructure kind of being the infrastructure necessary to create automated stock exchanges and computerized um, securities transactions, how it sort of gets layered on top of kind of old infrastructure, right? And in the case of things like the, you know, the MCI, it's quite literal in some senses, right? You know, you there running running fiber optic cables along the right of ways of railroads right um, and there's this great moment in the book that came out um, a few years ago by michael lewis called flash boys which is about high frequency trading and he starts the book with the story of a company that spends 300 million dollars to lay as straight of a fiber optic cable as possible between the computer servers that run the chicago mercantile exchange outside of chicago and the computers that run the nasdaq outside of new york and suburban new jersey right you literally have to blast through limestone and ford rivers but it's all about creating this infrastructure right it's because the fiber optic cables follow the railroads they go around the allegheny mountains and that took microseconds off the time that or added microseconds to the time that this signal can, can move right and for me, I mean, certainly that Michael Lewis tells the story better than I ever could. But, you know, for me, it's something that's interesting. This process that we now think of as so virtual, so disembodied, physical infrastructure is still really at the, the core of it, right? So a lot of what I'm looking at in the project is people's designs and plans for new trading floors. I mean, both of the institutions thought, you know, in order to create more volume on the exchange, in order to get more people involved, you need more physical space. You need a 50,000 square foot um, unpartitioned space located in a financial district with support functions on top of it. And so the conversation quickly, you know, over, you know, I guess 20 years or so moves from creating physical place for physical spaces for people to stand to creating 
infrastructure that will run automation. So whether it's fiber optic cables or the locations for computer servers, or even the ways you can sort of get the workers who then you know, run these computer servers to work. This all, I guess the core point here, you know, one of the core points is that infrastructure sort of and physics the infrastructure and architecture sort of matter in an earlier era, and they continue to matter, they just matter in a different way. You know, it's like, what's interesting, right, is in MCI sort of talks about this, like some of the CEO of MCI sort of always, you know, he gets invited every year to speak at like the NASDAQ, you know, um, CEO's conference, and he's on the board of directors. He always says that, look, there's something about sort of MCI and NASDAQ sort of evolving together, right? The NASDAQ always kind of was famous for, you know, these you know tech stocks right the first the first dot com bubble in the in the two thousand in two thousand right it was tech stocks right like Nasdaq was newer there were fewer um, barriers to getting listed on the exchange and so you know newer companies like you know tech companies high you know high technology firms were the ones that were being kind of listed there but the Nasdaq itself is an exchange that is sort of fundamentally based on technology whether it was you know relatively rudimentary telecommunications initially to an increasingly sort of networked and computerized um, network that spread all over the country and then eventually is making connections I'm finding the archive to Singapore and to, to Los Angeles and Tokyo so I'm trying to sort of suss out how I'm going to use the MCI papers with those two um, frameworks in mind like Number one, it's just interesting enough just to get a sense of the evolving NASDAQ and how it continued to um, function as a market. So there's annual reports and you know, speeches given at the conferences where the board, you know, the people on the board of directors or the CEOs of the major listed companies evolve. But because I'm, you know, my background is not in history of technology, like I'm trying to understand like how how the MCI records can give us a sense about how you know, this emerging technological infrastructure evolved, right? So I probably don't have the expertise to get into things like message switching and stuff like that. But you know, it's, it's fascinating to see like say a map of the fiber optic networks in lower Manhattan um, being built in the 1980s. You know, know that one of those buildings, one of the nodes is 55 Water Street, which is a couple of blocks away from the main trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. 55 Water Street is the place where the Securities Industry Automation Corporation was headquartered, which was the something that the New York Stock Exchange and the American Stock Exchange, it's a company that they you know co-founded together in order to sort of automate the functions of this place. So clearly like this stock industry automation is one of the nodes of this emerging fiber optic network in New York City and, and beyond. So yeah, trying to, trying to mix those two things together. Chicago is known for commodities trading with the Chicago Board of Trade, New York, of course, New York Stock Exchange, to a lesser extent, Amex, right? And so what interested me about, because what interested me, that I, I got into this project because as an urban historian, I was actually at the, uh, the Rockefeller archives up in Westchester County. And you know, going back to papers that I'd looked at before, um, an organization called the Downtown Lower Manhattan Association, which was founded by David Rockefeller um, as a way to, I guess there was a moment in the, in the 19, particularly in the 1960s where, where Lower Manhattan was losing its competitive advantage vis-a-vis -vis Midtown when it came to office space and sort of high financial activity. Um, sort of made sense, right? The trains, you know, it's an area of suburbanization. All the train stations are, you know, in, uh, in Midtown Manhattan, except just the, the path. So David Rockefeller, when he, he was the president of Chase when they built uh, Chase Manhattan Plaza down in Lower Manhattan, and the Downtown Lower Manhattan Organization Association was behind, you know, a lot of really well-known projects from the World Trade Center to Battery Park City. They may not have, you know, thought of them on their own, but they were kind of heavily involved. So I was just very interested in this archive. They were also a backer of the thankfully not constructed uh, Lower Manhattan Expressway that would have gone across Broom Street and obliterated with uh, Soho, which is the subject of my, my first book. 
But the Downtown Lower Manhattan Association was really in, was, was a whole bunch of information about plans to build a new trading floor for the New York Stock Exchange in the 1960s. And also threats by the New York Stock Exchange to sort of move out of Lower Manhattan altogether because the tax situation was better in New Jersey. A lot of companies did this. So, I mean, I was fascinated by the very fact that this was debated and sort of the terms of this debate, but I knew that eventually there, there is no trade, new trading floor in the New York Stock Exchange. Um, I did my PhD in Chicago, and I know, you know a decent amount about the city, and I knew that, well, in the, the Chicago Board of Trade has its iconic building on LaSalle Street, but it also has had several um, expansions in, you know, in the time since that building was built around 1930. Um, and I know that the expansion sort of came about based on the sort of new financial products that Chicago Board of Trade was you know, developing. So their financial options were built in the second building, the, the kind of futures and derivative, the derivatives market came in the third structure. So I sort of wanted to know like, why was this this kind of pro proliferation of new buildings in Chicago, where in New York it's relatively stable, at least the built environment of these exchanges. And you know, this is something I still am investigating, but I think it you know, comes back to the fact that in Chicago, there was a real reticence to sort of give up the traditional open outcry method of commodities trading, right? So you've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off or something like that, or trading places, I guess. You know, people standing in pit, brokers standing in pits, tra you know, traders standing in pits and making hand signals and yelling to each other, right? And so that was still, you know, still rel stopped relatively recently, but, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, I mean, this was still still the method of trading. And so to do that, you need like actual trading floors and you have to keep building more of them. Whereas in New York, I think because New York, the New York exchange is automated a bit quicker, you had more of that activity moving to computers. Now, certainly the Chicago, the Chicago commodities exchanges have um, since automated, and right now their pits are pretty much empty, just in the same way that the New York Stock Exchange trading floor is essentially ornamental. Um, so in, in that sense, there's kind of a divergence for a while, then a convergence. And then another kind of main convergence of these is that, you know, with the development of uh, options contracts on financial instruments in the 1970s, there's kind of the the two exchanges are in fact sort of linked in terms of their trading, right? And the whole Michael Lewis's book about high frequency trading sort of outlines, you know, this fiber optic cable between Chicago and New York. The reason it's there is because people found a way to make, you know, billions of dollars, I think, off the sort of time lag between where one could get information in the options market and one when you could get of information in the securities market. So in that sense, they're always sort of a conjoined entity. You know, I, I think that, well, I, I doubt it's gonna be the sort of main conclusions of my book. There's clearly parallels in the story I'm telling and sort of broader histories of, you know, the histories of the development of the internet or the histories of telecommunications around the, around the country. I don't know yet whether this is sort of, a, you know, whether these um, industries are sort of, a, you know, a, a leader in, you know, driving the development of the internet or driving, you know, new applications for technology. You know, I don't know. I don't get that sense. I think we tend, you know, as of yet, I mean, I think, you know, it is something, I have a colleague at Princeton who's doing a really great project on the history of the yuppies. Um, the history of the yuppie as a figure. And it's sort of what's interesting about his research, he's sort of like, you know, we're in a moment now where, you know, everything is financialized and, you know, titans of Wall Street, you know, control you know, their influence can be so vast. And certainly that has been the case for a long time, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been interesting to sort of revisit a time where certainly there was money to be made on Wall Street, but in the 1960s and 70s, it was not what it is today in terms of dominating just the political and financial landscape of the city, right? I think there was a real sense that like Wall Street was falling behind, right? So I don't, I don't know whether they were necessarily technological innovators. Um, certainly, 
you know, there's changes with the deregulations of the 1980s. And so I think there's probably kind of parallel deregulations going on with certainly the story of MCI bears that out with telecommunications and with um, securities. And what I'm more interested in is like, you know, I, I ask myself this question all the time because my, you know, first book and a lot of my teaching were about, you know, the histories is about Soho and the history of artist-led gentrification. And so it has in some ways very little to do with like securities industry automation, right? But fundamentally what I find interesting is that these are stories of what happens to sort of the post-industrial city, right? And so the moments in the project that I found the most fascinating have been where you know, something um, where, you know, the Chicago Board of Trade says, well, you know, what we actually, if we want a big unpartitioned space, yes, we can build that, build that in a skyscraper at, at great expense and have to worry about the load of the building on top of a five-story trading floor that has no internal posts that would block the communications lanes between people. But you know where else we could get a really big unpartitioned space is out in a suburb where a lot of industrial production is going, right? So, you know, they don't move there, but at least ask the question, like, why can't this just be an, in an industrial space in the suburbs? In the same way, um, looking at, you know, there's this kind of race in New York City in the 1980s to attract or retain the sort of back office component of Wall Street, right? The people who are running, you know, once there's kind of a separation between the sort of paperwork that is generated by the banking and securities industries and the physical paper, right? So that stuff gets moved onto computer servers. You can move that work and move the computer servers wherever, right? And New Jersey is doing a really good job sort of creating tax incentives, building building kind of um, office parks to attract some of that um, some of that labor and some of those jobs. And so one of the things that you know New York City leaders are sort of looking at, they're like, well where can we put where can we put some of these computer servers? They're like, ah, all those industrial lofts that aren't being used by that aren't being used by industry anymore. The same some of the same types of lofts that artists were in Soho were turning into um, you know, studios, apartments, and galleries that eventually become some of the kind of priciest real estate in New York, you know, there are lofts in areas that are not as, you know, exciting as Soho is today, right? Some place like Long Island City, which now is quite gentrified, but for many years wasn't, you know, there are loft buildings there too. You know, there are loft buildings in the, in, you know, in the fur district. And so some of, they're actually wondering like, well, maybe we could use, maybe we could use some of those old industrial lofts for computer for you know back office computer workers right and so this is sort of, kind of it's all wrapped up in this question of like what be you know how do cities transition from industrial to post-industrial how does architecture in the built environment shape all of this and of course you know how do things like you know politics and you know labor labor history and social movements all kind of get wrapped up together in it thus far sort of at the 30,000 foot view is that there is a you know there is more and more investment activity both public and institutional participation in um, in, in securities markets, you know, starting with World War II, and it seems fairly consistent, right? I think something that's been interesting to track is that, you know, every year there's, it seems, there's um, an estimate of how much volume is going to be on the, on the exchanges, and they're exceeded year after year, right? You know, in the Chicago Board of Trade, you know, there's a document I was looking over again where it says, you know, we, we, can, we have to we imagine that the demand for space on the Chicago Board of Trade is essentially infinite. Right, like they're they're planning for infinite participation in these listed markets, right? So, the regulation or, or deregulation, it seems that there's a relative consistency throughout the post, at least the the period through which I'm going to go up to, which is probably roughly you know sometime in the late '80s, early '90s. It seems fairly consistent. I've been finishing a chapter on Metro Tech in uh, Brooklyn, which is an urban renewal project designed for um, 
essentially, you know, the, the telecommunications industry and the back office of um, the back offices of, of banks and securities firms. And so it's something where you certainly can see in this moment this sort of kind of transition between thinking of, you know, tech as something that is, I mean, certainly tech is, you know, white collar, it's tech, right? But, you know, you think to something like Silicon Valley, like Silicon Valley is, it was named that not just because it had engineers, but it also because it had silicon production, you know, and there's different parts of the valley, the different labor markets sort of got involved in this, there, there certainly divides. And I think that, like, what I'm looking in New York, in um, New York and to a lesser extent Chicago, there's, there's a bit of that sort of, um, thought processes where there's both a sense that, you know, yes, telecommunications are this industry of the future. New York wants to position themselves for this high tech industry. Um, and, you know, there are, in a way, the projects like Metro Tech are seeking to compete with, you know, the kind of uh, cities of knowledge that get developed in, in you know, the Stanford Research Park or even in Bell Labs in, in suburban New Jersey. But you know the way they speak about these industries, they're also, and I don't know whether this is real or just kind of like what you had to do, you know, to politically justify some of the kind of tax breaks and expenditures, you know, for these projects was to say, you know what, like, yes, this is high tech, but also we see, you know, writing on the there's writings on the wall every year. There are fewer and fewer blue collar jobs in the city. There's fewer and fewer manufacturing jobs. Like, what are what are people going to do for work? I think there, there was often this argument to be made that the kind of clerical work that be, was increasingly in demand with the automation of the sort of white collar industries in New York would provide jobs for some of the people that used to be in kind of blue collar occupations. They would probably need a little bit more training, but it wasn't, you know, PhD or a master's in electrical engineering, right? So in that sense, you know, to answer your question, like it's the sort of tech or or telecommunications is at least was envisioned as somewhat blue collar while while being white collar. I think the irony, of course, then is like as the industry develops, like well, it just you know automation just makes more and more of the you know, clerical jobs that were in demand at some point essentially redundant, right? You know, and so there you sort of get into the dynamic we have now, where there's you know there's people who are you know, designing you know maybe designing the software for this this infrastructure that people are working on Wall Street, and sort of lower end clerical jobs are also disappearing. I'm looking at this project like from the perspective of exchanges and you know the stock exchanges like are always sort of competitive with each other right in the sense like they're they want to make sure that market activity goes through their their institution i mean i think there's you know it's easy for the new york stock exchange to say like look we're the biggest game in town if you want to be a player you need to be on our exchange but then they're you know the whole time they're looking they say well but also you know if we if we charge too much then all of a sudden they're going to go to philadelphia or someone's going to trade somewhere else so in a sense, like think the exchanges are themselves a bit reactive, reactive to trends, reactive to their own members, reactive to the market for um, for, for new members. Um, but yeah, it's something you know as a, as a historian, right? I'm trying to think think through these stories, trying to figure out like what like who the major actors are, like who are the people who are kind of making the decisions that drive this narrative forward. Like money can't like just physically get up and move around, like people make it up and in the same way people make up the institutions and the infrastructures through which you know money changes hands investments can be made and so like you know as you, you mentioned infrastructure and that is kind of fundamentally what I'm trying to get back at like what is like what is the infrastructure that get, that's created that to make sort of finance work how does it move how does it how does it evolve um, where does it get sticky where does it break since then, you know, since at least the 1980s, this you know trend towards sort of thinking of the economy, thinking particularly of you know 
finance as somehow removed from the rules that everyone else plays with, whether those are political or just even the rules of, you know, of nature, right? Like there's this sense like, oh, the only thing stopping, you know, high frequency traders is the speed of light. If they could only get past that, they can make even more money. Well, like some, I want to sort of reground this story in, you know, in urban politics, in local stories, in stories of kind of architecture and urban development, because they, they were rather sticky, right? The New York Stock Exchange continued to be the New York Stock Exchange because there were debates about, you know, where it should where it should go, you know, real conversations with consequences about tax policy, you know, keeping back office jobs in the city, you know, had to do, you know, we're relying on our urban renewal projects that caused, you know, people to people to lose their homes and businesses to move. So none of this stuff is flowing. None of this stuff is, uh, you know, intangible and disembodied. It involves like actual people having conversations, sometimes bulldozers knocking down structures, and real decisions about, you know, where, you know, government is going to invest its, its limited capital in the sort of framework of a, you know, messy, complicated, diverse city. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.